All right, so we are, we are in Acts chapter 19. And we're going to go through the rest of Acts chapter 19, take us down um, to the end of the chapter here. Actually, we're going to go through verse 20. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8, and we're going to go uh, through verse 20 today. So let's, let's read this section of Scripture. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But then some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped, leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look into your word today, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, illuminate this world. word, open our hearts and open our minds, that your word, Lord, would have entrance and that your word would transform us, that we would indeed be conformed to the very image of Jesus. We thank you for that promise, that Lord, you are working in us by your spirit to bring us to that place of conforming to the image of the Son. Father, we ask this, that we, your people, your church, your body in the earth today, would be a light and a witness in this world, that we would be as you encouraged us, as you exhorted us, as you command us to be, salt and light to this world. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So, Closed doors are nothing but an opportunity showing itself to us. So think about that. Paul is now in Ephesus. Remember, he comes 
uh, back to Ephesus after making his brief stop there, goes back down to Jerusalem, then goes up to Antioch, and now he's made his way, kept his word, and has returned to Ephesus. And we know from this scripture that Paul stays there for two years. But as was his custom, as he did everywhere that he went, there was a synagogue. He goes to the synagogue first. And so Paul spent three months in the synagogue reasoning with the Jews concerning the gospel. But after three months, the synagogue was closed to Paul, but God had opened another door. I have a piece of art on my porch from a favorite artist that says when God closes a door, he opens a window somewhere. No, that's not from the Bible. That is from the sound of music. In Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, what is noteworthy is that Paul left the synagogue taking the disciples with him after faithfully reasoning with the Jews there for three months. But due to the hardness of their hearts, the scripture tells us Paul departed. He left the synagogue to teach daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, what this school was, we do not know for certain. Some think it was a school of philosophy, some a medical school that uh, belonged to a friend of Luke's and maybe let Paul have a place there to teach. Some thought it might be a hall, a house. What we know for sure is that we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that Paul taught the gospel in this school for two years. We do know from the record of Scripture that Paul taught daily in the school. One reference tells us that Paul taught there from the 4th to the 10th hour every day, or from about 11 o'clock until about 4 o'clock in the evening. Luke records for us that Paul taught daily in the school for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That indicates that God used those two years in a mighty way to bring people to hear the gospel of Christ throughout Ephesus and throughout that region. Like Paul, we must be willing to go to those places where God opens the door for us to preach and to teach the gospel. We must preach and teach the gospel inside the walls of the church. This is part of the problem in our nation today. We have abandoned the gospel. We have stopped preaching the gospel of Christ for a more um, acceptable version of the gospel that is not a gospel because we desire to please men more than we desire to please God because we fear men more than we fear God. So the gospel is absolutely something that must be preached within the walls of the church, but we must also preach and teach the gospel outside the walls of the church as well. And like Paul, we do this in obedience to Christ to make disciples and establish the church as firmly as we can in God's grace. So as Paul ministered those two years in Ephesus, the scripture in verse 11 tells us that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. It says that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick and that diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. A miracle is a supernatural occurrence that is 
contrary to nature. A miracle is not usual in that sense of the word. The term unusual miracles in this verse indicates that these were not ordinary miracles, if we can call miracles ordinary. These were unusual miracles, even for the Apostle Paul. The nature of these miracles was extraordinary. Now, depending on uh, your background spiritually, uh, I was talking to our, our new friend Joel, and welcome uh, our families here that came from California, and, and uh, they're coming here, and they're going to plant a church in our area, and so we're excited. And I told Joel, I said, yeah, this is an answer to prayer because we're praying that God would bring people because we need a move of God. We need a move of God all over our land, but we need a move of God here. This is where God has put us. This is where we live. And so we need a move of God. And the move of God, as we're going to talk about today, has to begin with us and in us before it can happen anywhere else. And so these unusual miracles, these things that were extraordinary uh, even for the Apostle Paul, God did these things, uh, handkerchiefs and aprons. Uh, I, I was telling Joel as he was asking a little bit about our church, and I said, well, it's kind of a long story, and we have kind of a very unusual history. We've kind of gone from a word of faith, charismatic church to a reformed church, um, and he could relate to that because he used to be involved with the vineyard movement. Uh, so... Uh, and so if you've been in that world at all, you've probably seen men who, who uh, sell handkerchiefs and pieces of cloth and little bottles of oil or water. And if you send your seed in, uh, your seed offering, they'll send you a little piece of cloth that you can put on your body and you'll be healed. Well, where did they come up with that? Well, they came up with that because that's what happened here in the book of Acts. The difference is Paul wasn't selling his handkerchief and he wasn't selling his aprons. He wasn't cutting them in little pieces and then selling them for seed offerings uh, to support his ministry. In fact, I don't, think, I don't even think it was necessarily Paul that was doing this. I think it was the people who, because they, they saw what was happening. There was this unusual move of God, handkerchiefs, the, the very things Paul would wipe his brow with, his apron. Remember, Paul was a leather worker. He was a tent maker. He was a, a worker of leather. He probably wore aprons and wore aprons out, and they would take his aprons and take pieces of things that had touched his body to lay on those who were sick, to lay on those who were oppressed. And God did these unusual miracles through the hands of Paul. And though God certainly can and does use miracles of the common and the unusual sort, it is not the miracle, but the Lord who brings men to salvation. The Lord was performing an unusual and sovereign move of God through the apostle. We don't take that as a formula by which we now work and operate. That was a sovereign move of God. That, that we can't, that no man can, can reproduce. God would make sure through Paul, just as he had through Moses, 
that no magician would be able to copy or claim superiority over the power of God. These miracles were so unusual that the tricks of the itinerant Jewish exorcists or the enchantments of heathen practitioners were completely overshadowed by the things that God performed by the hands of the Apostle Paul. In this Gentile center of pagan worship, in the city of Ephesus, God was making him, himself known in an unusual and powerful way. God was drawing men to himself. He was exposing the counterfeit power through the manifestation of his true power. It's not the sign, it is the Father who draws men. God may use any means that he chooses, but it is not a sign or wonder that draws men, it is the Father. The Father draws men as He chooses, with or without using signs or wonders. He does all things according to His will in His plan and purpose. We often think, and how many times have you heard someone say this, or maybe you've said it yourself. I know I've said it before. We often think that if men had a miraculous sign, they would believe. If they could just see a miracle, if God would just heal them, I know they would believe. If God would just do this for them, I know they would believe. But Jesus teaches that is not the case. God's word is our sufficient and eternal witness. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus points out this truth when the rich man begs that Lazarus return from the dead to warn the rich man's five brothers. Luke 16, 27 through 31. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Think about those words. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. In those words of Jesus, he is alluding to his own resurrection from the dead. Men have the witness and the testimony of the word of God all around them. Paul writes in Romans 1 that they are without excuse because his invisible attributes are clearly seen. It is by the word of God, the very word of God, that everything was spoken into existence. In that sense, the word of God testifies all around us. It is the word of God that men must ultimately believe. They will either by God's grace embrace the truth or they will suppress it in unrighteousness. In John 6, Jesus said, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Those the Father draws will hear by faith the word of God. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, and it will powerfully save those who have ears to hear. Our salvation is the greatest miracle we could ever experience. It is not a steady diet of miracles that men need. It is the word of God. God, no doubt, performs miracles as he wills, and we should believe for the miraculous However, it is not the bread of miracles, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God that must be our daily and steady diet. 
Then we shall know the truth, and the truth will make us free. The power of the enemy is real, but the power of God is greater. Those itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. They actually called the name of Jesus over those they were trying to exorcise. There's a difference. They did not call upon the name of Jesus. They called out the name of Jesus. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And then that spirit overpowered them, prevailed against them, the scripture says, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Those itinerant Jewish exorcists were literally wandering Jewish exorcists. That word itinerant, it means they were wanderers. They were strollers, strolling around, wandering around. Think of them like you would think of the stereotypical band of gypsies roaming around, telling people's fortunes and making people believe that they had powers to tell the future and to cast spells and charms. Some of these were illusionists wandering around, casting charms, telling fortunes, seeking to heal the sick, and reportedly casting out demons using methods prescribed by Solomon. According to Josephus, the Jews were especially addicted to such practices with spells of sorcery connected with the name of Solomon. In other words, the gullibility of people is not new. The people of God seem to be some of the most gullible people. Have you ever noticed that? And it's really sad. Unfortunately, self-proclaimed prophets and fortune tellers often fall into the same category of telling people what they desire to hear instead of the truth. And people's desire is very powerful. I still have people telling me to not lose hope because the prophets have prophesied that by March or April, Trump will be back in the White House. And there are people that believe this. There are Christians who believe this. Today, right now, they believe it because the prophet said so. Because someone had a dream. You know what Ezekiel said? Ezekiel said, you dream the dreams because that you make yourself dream. Because there have always been dreamers and there have always been false prophets. And here in this chapter of Acts, in the city of Ephesus, God was pulling the covers back on that false prophecy, that false power that seemed so real that people were gullibly going after and believing in. Unfortunately, self-proclaimed prophets and fortune tellers often fall into the same category, telling people what they desire to hear instead of the truth. And hearing of Paul's exploits by the power of God, these wandering Jewish exorcists sought to use the name of Jesus as a sort of charm or spell to cast out demons. They are no more guilty than many people are today who profess to be Christians who simply hold the name of Jesus as some charm, some lucky charm like a rabbit's foot you would put in your pocket. Very often, Jesus is simply our spiritual 911. 
And he is happy to be our spiritual 911. But if he is only your spiritual 911, then Jesus may be someone you know of, but not someone you necessarily know. And there is a difference. These were not followers of Christ, but simply men seeking opportunity to use the name of Jesus for their own ill-gotten profit. Let's look at the difference between these Jewish exorcists here in the book of Acts and those that unnamed disciple recorded in Luke's gospel who was casting out demons. Luke chapter 9, verse 49 and 50. Now John answered and said, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. He who is not against us is on our side. We heard this today in Sunday school. We heard this in in our lessons. Jesus has indicated this, if you're not for me, then you are against me. He says it right here, he who is not against us is on our side. With Jesus, there is no gray area. You are either in him or you are not. You are either for him or you are not. To the world, that sounds harsh. To the world, they would say it cannot be that cut and dried, but With Jesus, it was that cut and dried. The difference is simple but powerful. When we compare these Jewish exorcists who called the name of Jesus over someone versus this unnamed disciple who cast out demons in the name of Jesus, one was doing it for Christ and one was doing it for themselves. One sought the glory of Christ and one sought their own glory. One bore the name of Jesus and one simply used the name of Jesus. One was known by Christ and the other only knew of Christ. In it all, you know who knew the difference? The demons knew the difference. They knew the difference between the true and the false. And so too must we know truth from error. For the believer, the child of God who has the Spirit of God dwelling within, the enemy has no power. He has no power over us except the power to deceive if we will allow ourselves to be deceived. And how do we keep from being deceived? By knowing the truth. Now, if you are in Jesus, if you are born again, if you are truly regenerate and you belong to Jesus, you will never be deceived and lose your salvation. But we are a people of covenant. And if someone says to me, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to take that person at their word. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. But I don't know I don't know at what place that person might be in their life. So if someone says, I I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, I will grant them that and treat them as a brother or as a sister. 
But if someone is only calling upon the name of Jesus or using the name of Jesus or knows of Jesus but doesn't really know Jesus and doesn't know the gospel and has not been changed and transformed and regenerated by the power of the gospel and the power of God and Jesus is just someone they know of or some tradition that they grew up with, you realize just because everyone is in church doesn't mean everyone is necessarily born again. This is why the Bible gives us real warnings. This is why we have a responsibility as brothers and sisters. We are our brother's keeper. It's why the Bible says when we see our brother in sin, we should go to him with humility and grace. Because if we love our brother, then we don't want our brother to remain in sin. Even if it hurts their feelings. Even if it causes a disruption in the relationship. Do we love our brother enough to say your life is not consistent with your baptism? Your life, the way you're walking right now, is not consistent with your confession of being a follower of Jesus. Or do we just say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit will work it out. Well, if that's the case, then why does the Bible give us these commands and admonitions to love our brother, go to our brother, confess our faults to one another, to pray for one another? Because we are a body. And that's the way the Scripture presents us, functioning together, supplying what the other needs James chapter 4, verse 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The child of God, humbled and submitted before God, has the promise from God that the devil will flee as we resist him. The devil cannot overpower a child of God. It is Jesus who has overpowered and triumphed over the devil. And powers and principalities. And how did he triumph over them? In the cross. Colossians 2.15 Having disarmed principalities and power, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. There is no accusation for the enemy to bring against you anymore because the accusations that were against you, the handwriting of requirement that was against you has been nailed to the cross, has been taken away in Jesus. That is the weapon that the enemy had. That is the weapon that the enemy used. It was the accusation of our sin. And that was a true accusation. But in Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb, the sin has been taken away. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There is no more accusation that the enemy can bring. He has been disarmed. And what is his weaponry? What has it always been? His tongue. His ability to deceive. He didn't go into the garden and slay Adam and Eve with a sword. He went in very cunningly 
And he mixed the lie with elements of the truth. And they were led astray. We are called people to know the truth, to be set free by that truth. And knowing that Jesus has triumphed, we must never fear the devil. Jesus has already defeated our enemy. It is not the devil we are to fear. It is God we are to fear. Fear God, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. And as we humble ourselves before God, God promises that he will lift us up in due time. The name of the Lord Jesus is to be magnified. When Jesus lifts us up, it is not that we would be seen, it's that he would be seen. It's not our name that is to be magnified, it is the name of the Lord Jesus that is to be magnified. And this is exactly what happened. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and the fear and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. What happened to those Jewish wandering exorcists was known all across Ephesus. What happened is people laid handkerchiefs and, and pieces of Paul's clothing on the sick and the oppressed, those miraculous things that happened became known across all Ephesus and the region. And when they saw the manifestation of God's power, when they saw the power that was resident in the name of Jesus, the Bible says fear fell on them all. This is very similar to what happened with, uh, in the book of Acts when we see uh, Ananias and Sapphira come in and lie, and they drop dead, and fear fell on all. The demonstration of God's power caused fear to fall on them all, including the enemies of the gospel. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. As the fear of the Lord fell on them all, the enemies of the gospel were silenced for a season. This caused the name of Jesus to be magnified and proclaimed in all the region of Asia and beyond. Paul was teaching daily in the school of Tyrannus. The events that had taken place were ordained by God to give the gospel a season of growth. The manifestation of God's power in the name of Jesus and the fear that fell on all provided a season of growth in the gospel in the city of Ephesus and beyond. And as we continue through Acts, we're going to see that the environment flipped in Ephesus after a while. There's a reason why Paul was only there for two years. And God allowed this season of favor to pass. And we're going to see that later on. And this is why we must trust God in every season of our life. If we're living in a season of favor, a season of abundance and blessing, it's for a reason. And we should never take that for granted. If we're living in a season where we're literally running for our lives because the city wants to kill us, then we have to believe and we have to trust that that is for a reason and God has a plan and a purpose in everything. And he does. The gospel brings transformation. Many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. 
So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So there were Gentiles who were idolatrous worshipers of false gods who practiced the magic arts. They came confessing their sin and burning their books in mass. There were Jews who were addicted to the practices of sorcery and spells connected with those Jewish itinerant exorcists and Jewish mysticism who came repenting of their sin and burning their books with the fear of the Lord falling on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus being magnified with the spiritual transformation and repentance from sin and false beliefs, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Praise God. Don't you wish that wasn't just something we were reading about that happened 2,000 years ago? This is exactly what we must be praying for. This is exactly what we must be working for. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we make disciples. This is why we are salt and light, and we try to go out into the world to make a difference, to impact, to influence. We're not just waiting here until we go to heaven. We're not just waiting here for Jesus to return. Remember, there were a lot of people who thought Jesus was coming back in September. And the reality is, God has made promises to thousands of generations. And we need to be living our lives as though there are still thousands of generations that will yet live on this earth before Jesus returns. I'm not a prophet. I don't know when he's coming back, but I do know what he has promised in his word. And I do know those promises are written to, given to, thousands of generations. That means that we must be living our lives in a way that we are creating a pathway for the generations coming after us. That we need to be willing to be stepping stones, stepped and mashed into the mud if necessary, so that those generations following us will have a path to walk on and will be able to clearly see the Lord Jesus. What Paul saw happen in Ephesus is what we need today. We have lost the fear of the Lord we need the fear of God to fall on us all. We need the name of the Lord Jesus to be magnified. We need to turn from our idols and sorceries and the weak arm of the flesh. Those will never achieve what only a move of God can achieve. We need the word of the Lord to grow mightily and prevail over all the lies of the enemy. Those outside the church and those inside the church. And don't think there are not lies of the enemy that exist in the church because they do. The move of God we need will only happen as we purpose to seek the face of God in repentance and humility. We must turn from our wicked ways and pray that God will move in his mighty way and heal our land. We need God to move in us. We need God to move through us. We need God to move all around us. We need a move of God. We need the name of the Lord Jesus to be magnified and the word of the Lord to grow mightily and to prevail. We need what only God can provide and he has provided for us abundantly. 
more than we can think or ask in Jesus Christ. And this is why we come to the table every week. We come to this table as a reminder of what God has abundantly provided for us. That we are not lacking because God has abundantly provided. It's like I always say, you know, my problems in algebra when I was in school had nothing to do with the algebra book. It had to do with my comprehension. We're not lacking anything in Jesus. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that doesn't mean we're going to get them one day when we get to heaven. It means they're ours. They're eternal. They belong to us right now in Jesus. But we need to look to the Lord. We need to trust in the Lord. We need to humble ourselves and pray and call upon the name of the Lord. We need to return to the gospel of Christ for the gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God to salvation. Amen? Let us all stand. Here's your charge today. Any move of God must begin with a desire in each of our own hearts. It must not stop there, though. It must start in our heart and grow beyond there. It must mightily prevail in us before it will prevail in the world around us. Jesus has made a way where there was no way. Now we are called to walk in that way, not looking at what seems impossible, but looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Trust in Jesus. He will keep his word and build his church even in the face of all opposition, even the most impossible looking opposition. Jesus promised us tribulation in this world, but with these words of exhortation, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so he has, and so do we. Amen.